Hi, my name is Heather Pringelo. I created Systemic Renewal and I believe that no one and no situation is ever too far gone. everyone and welcome back to Never Too Far Gone. This is Heather Tutringolo. I am about to record the final podcast of the series that I've been recording to introduce the concept of systemic renewal, my passion and my life's work. And what I'm going to do is today explain very simply Uh, give a clear overview of exactly what the method of systemic renewal is, having sort of set the stage for the concept and the modes that we work in. Today, I want to explain what it is and what we actually do to affect it. I know it's taken me too long to get there. Uh, We could unpack why that might be. Uh, It's got to do with me stalling on sharing something that is so close to my heart that it feels vulnerable to put it out there and begin to put it in front of people, but I'm ready. I'm going to do it now. And what I'm planning to do is from February, I'm going to move the podcast into a bit of a different mode and start a series about finding favor. And throughout the year, there'll be a range of different series that relate to how we lead change at a micro, meso and macro level and delving into just the different aspects of what systemic renewal involves as a skill set. So from February, uh, there'll be a bit of a focus on finding favor. How do you discern who to work with? One of the most important and fundamental questions in leading change effectively. So I'm really pumped for that. But if you're ready, let's get into the methodology that is systemic renewal today. I hope you have found half an hour for yourself. I hope you're in a place that feels relaxing and inspiring for you. I hope you can take a breath, take a moment to remind yourself that you're doing really well, that your efforts matter, and that nobody else can bring exactly what you bring to the stage, to the environment that you serve and live within exactly the way you do. Systemic renewal is really about how to get personal about macro level change. And I see this as such a missing skill set in the leadership that we are seeing in our world that I, I want to spend the rest of my life studying it, finessing it and sharing this ability So systemic renewal is an evidence-based method. This is important. It is not just a range of ideas that I randomly came up with. It's drawn from the science of what we know about how collective mindsets change and specifically what pedagogies work to lead people through a collective change of thinking, renewed understanding of who they are, what they're doing, what matters, what's true, what's untrue, what's okay, and what's not okay. So systemic renewal is an evidence-based method for changing collective mindsets so that strategic change actually works. We talk a lot about mindsets these days. We know that at the base of all effective systems change is a change in paradigm, a change in mindset, a change in understanding who we are, what we're doing, and why. Uh, but we don't really have methods for how to change that. 
other than talking about it, other than acknowledging that it's a thing. Systemic renewal is the art of how to change mindsets, and it's drawn from evidence in a couple of different ways. So the first way that it's evidence-based is that it's a practice that is drawn from research into the pedagogy, pedagogies, excuse me, that work to enable groups of people to change the way they think and behave. And we do know quite a lot about that. The second way that it's evidence-based is in its practice. So it involves forming strategies for change in our context that are based on data we deliberately gather about the experiences of people in the system, both historically and in the present, and not only what the experiences are that might be key to how the collective mindset has shaped, but how these experiences have been interpreted and responded to. So if I was to sum this up in one sentence and say there's one take home from today, one concept that I really want to share with you uh, in the next half hour is that transitions in life, in business, in sectors, in nations, transitions are emotional and they are always emotional before they are theoretical or cognitive or technical or practical. We know this and yet we lead as if change is technical, theoretical, cognitive and practical before it's emotional. And the reason we do this, I think, is that we don't really have a science base in our practice and in our training for how to lead emotional change for whole communities, for whole systems. So first of all, quick disclaimer, not all change is deeply transitional and emotional. Some changes are technical in our lives, uh, changing the detergent I use uh, to wash my dishes to something that has or claims to have less harmful chemicals in it for the environment around me is not an emotional change really. Uh, so there are technical changes that happen in our lives. But if I was to change my hairstyle tomorrow, change the colour, change the cut, maybe this would be more of an emotional experience for me. It would represent more of an identity shift for me or a change of season perhaps. It's the same for whole companies. It's the same for whole sectors. There are changes that are technical and not really emotional. And those are the things that don't cost us really, um, that aren't going to involve any kind of sacrifice or identity shift. So changing the software system we use to communicate with each other um, might involve a little bit of retraining, but it's not really a psychological transition. Changing your product or your marketing strategy that is going to be emotional because it's going to go to identity. So when significant change that involves transition out of an old identity or old way of understanding things into a new way of being and understanding and seeing ourselves happens, this is going to be an emotional experience before it's anything else. So systemic renewal is about how we understand, encapsulate the emotional experience that's happened across the system historically, how that's playing out now, and then how we actually can speak into it and work into it in a way that's going to start to shift it and turn it around. Transitions are emotional because they always start with an ending. And an ending happens because something has broken, failed, or become tired. Now, first of all, we want to normalize this. 
that is part of life. It isn't always a direct reflection on the company or the organization or the individual, although it may be. But perhaps that's even a secondary question. Loss, failure, mistakes, relearning, things becoming tired, things not working anymore, interruptions aren't something to be embarrassed by, ashamed of, or shy away from. They are part of life. So it's about, first of all, having that courageous ingenuity in leadership that normalizes these experiences. The way that systems break or experience breakage along the way could happen through a couple of different ways. The first is by external changes that have happened outside of the system that are impacting in on it. And the other is through internal changes or failures that may be historical, may be inherited, that begin to manifest. So the first area is external stresses. Examples of these include things like sudden uh, or, or not sudden economic downturn or natural disaster resulting in reduced profits. Reputational damage, which may be caused fairly or unfairly by negative media or moral failures by prior leadership. Increased competition and declining clientele, which may pose threats to sustainability for an industry. Burnout of staff uh, stemming from budget cuts, understaffing or internal pressures, long-established divisions or social inequalities that have led to deep mistrust that are making it hard for a system to function well. Uh, Another example would be for many people right now operating within a conflict zone or a post-conflict zone and uh, metabolising and digesting the aftermath of traumagenic events. The second area is what happens inside the system as the system grows, changes and learns from its mistakes and also as it is interrupted or invaded by imposters, which is often part of the story as well. So examples of inherited institutional failures may manifest. This might look like a decreased capacity for collaboration or shared vision, which is hindering organisational cohesion It may look like a lack of transparency or there's been misconduct by previous leaders, which has undermined trust and credibility. There might be outdated policies or the absence of policies to meet new challenges. And lastly, market failures or unsustainable investments, which contribute to financial instability and generally social anxiety levels. So systemic renewal is about how we work with the system as it faces and transitions through these kinds of experiences and how it becomes meaningful and how it becomes hopeful in the doing. So why do we need a method for this process? We currently live in a world that tries to change mindsets and collective ideologies by talking about it a lot, by changing personnel by emphasising who the better leader would be, by trying to change policy and through conversation. These are all important, but they are secondary outcomes of the deeper changes that do not happen at this level. Why have I been slow to bring this to the world? Because I know how countercultural this is, what I'm saying. Most of the methods we use to try to lead systemic change at a macro level and around issues that are complex and multifaceted and long-established, 
most of the methods we use are around secondary outcomes and don't go into the deeper changes that need to happen at a mindset level. If we change mindsets well and effectively, those personnel and policy changes and conversational changes are going to flow a lot more easily and smoothly. So to change mindsets, we have to first become students of the ways the system has interpreted and responded to its experiences. And we do this by drawing data from three levels, the micro, meso and macro level, and do this simultaneously. This is really the core of the method, is drawing data and responding to data simultaneously at all three levels. So we draw data about how individuals are experiencing the system, how the organization as a whole, as collective, is experiencing and responding to its experiences. And then at the macro level, which is a societal and cross-sector and cultural level, what are the grand narratives or the meta-narratives that have formed out of the experiences of the system? Once we identify these really accurately and from research, as opposed to the assumptions we often make about what those narratives are, we then become doctors who really design a medicine that specifically is designed to treat exactly where the mindset shift has become problematic and to treat it in the sense that we want to restore and heal where it's hurt, as well as introduce the counter narrative that's going to shift the dynamics. So we design and enact new mindsets at all three levels, micro, meso and macro. Now, I'm going to move now to just walking through the method that we use in four ways to do this. And it parallels with what I shared in the last podcast, which was the modes that we use, the mountain, the table, the green room and the stage. At each mode that we move in and out of in a consistent and rhythmic way over an extended period of time to lead change, we have a specific method. And these methods I'm going to share now uh, with you, uh, the, the basic principles there are details to them that, of course, I can't spell out uh, briefly in half an hour. Uh, and they need to be practiced in a community to really be finessed, which is why we'll be starting the Academy of Systemic Renewal this year. Um, but here they are, four methods. And uh, I'm really pleased to share this so that you can begin to think about how you integrate these methods into your own practice as a leader of change. So the first happens at the mountain level when we're in a mode of getting the story on individual experience and we start of course with our own experience. So the method at this level is to work individually before we do anything else to gather data about micro level or individual experiences. Now this already is countercultural and perhaps in some ways counterintuitive, but what I've found in my research is that if we are not in a discipline of researching and gathering data about our own experience and our own internal responses, as well as the individual experiences within the system of others, uh, we will never really get to the core of what the mindset issue is that needs to shift. Because the way that the core issues and blocks that have occurred along the way in the story surface and become known 
is through listening to individuals. And so we begin by working individually to listen very intentionally to ourselves and one-on-one to people who represent different players in the system. So we work individually to gather this data and that's the first step. Uh, One of the most important resources that you will ever have in your leadership is being able to share your process with the people you lead, your own process of internal change. I used to think this, now I think this. I used to understand it this way, but then I heard this person's story and I understood it differently. I used to think I was like this, but having spent time really listening to other people's feedback and really taking space to digest that, I've realized that I'm like this. I used to think we could change the system by doing this, but I've now learned better. And the magic in being able to use this kind of language with the people we work with and lead is twofold. One is it gives permission to the system, permission to the people within it to say, I was wrong. I'm learning. I'm in process. And the second value in doing this is that it builds trust with the people that we work with, that you're an honest person and that you are prepared to do all of the work in yourself that you're asking the community as a whole to do. Um, One of the more powerful moments in my own journey uh, happened as part of the research that I was doing for this project, actually. And I was working with a group of Christian leaders from different sectors, and I shared a presentation with them one day in which I shared about my own journey in terms of my identity as a woman in leadership. And I shared with them this honest truth that I used to think I was a very liberated woman who had very feminist ideologies, who was very egalitarian in the way that I did things and the way that I thought. But I gradually realised through my time with this group and through really reflecting on my own experiences and how the early experiences of my life had shaped my identity, that I had buried very subconsciously, very deeply within me at a deeper than cognitive level, at a bodily, emotional level, a real attitude of submissiveness and fear and slavery almost that I didn't really see myself as an equal. And in facing that, I said to the group, I want to confess to you that while I'm trying to lead others into freedom and to be liberated in their practice and in their leadership, I myself have been living in slavery. And I want to invite you to join me in the journey that I'm on to becoming free. So this kind of individual work that we do sets the tone to build deep trust with people to go on a journey of change that is going to be painful and costly in order to be purposeful. And what we're going to do in the academy is get into daily, weekly, monthly and quarterly rhythms of reflecting experientially on our own internal responses 
to the changes around us, but also gathering data on how different individuals at different levels of the system are experiencing change. So that's the first thing we do before anything else. Number two happens at the table, which is where we design the right medicine. So the method at the table is we work now as a community, not as individuals, to gather data and to problem solve the meso level, community level and macro level, society, societal level experiences. So we move from doing this individual work into doing very problem solving, very targeted work using a particular process that we've developed as a community. The most important thing about this table is getting the right people to it. And the thing that I want to impress here is never think for a second that change happens by winning the masses. It does not. The masses get won, if you like, over time, always because first small teams of people who are highly effective have been working together consistently to theorise what's gone wrong with the system and how it can be changed and then to start to inject those changes into the system. So small teams of the right people is one of the most important methodologies for leading mindset change. And it's about learning to gather people outside of established structures where decisions are made and where the usual power dynamics are at play. It's about being able to pull the right people aside to do deep analytical reflective work and problem solving work in a way that can be confidential and protected from impacting their career development and their relationships within the system. So working out who your allies are, who really shares the same vision and heart that you have for change, who's with you and who's going to be in it for the long haul, even when it gets hard and even when it gets costly. This is one of the most important questions that a leader can answer in their life and practice before what, before strategy, before what paper you're going to write, before what strategic change you're going to propose, before any research you do, who are you going to work with? We know that who is more important than what when it comes to effective leadership in organisations. There is heaps of data on this. So who are your allies? One thing I wanted to inject here was just the idea that, you know, there's a skill to discerning this that comes with time and practice. And we always get it wrong along the way as well. But again, it's a skill set that leaders need. It's how do you discern and test who your allies are? And how do you discern and test who actually might be working against you? And, and be realistic about that. Um, one of the things that I've noticed, because I've moved into lots of different communities in my life um, to lead and to serve, and part of the kind of leadership I do is that I move into communities for a season and then move out. So I meet a lot of people for the first time. I've, I've had a lot of introductory handshakes over the years. And one of the things that I found, which is just anecdotal, and I can't explain why this is, but often the first person to be particularly enthusiastic to get close to me, the very first person in a new community who, for example, invites me to dinner, is often the most problematic person in the system 
the most opposed to change. I don't know why, but I've just noticed that as a pattern. Now, I'm not saying that's a foregone conclusion. That's always what happens. But, you know, in time, we start to notice these little patterns about what behaviors indicate genuine uh, heart for change, genuine commitment, humility, the kind of character development that we need to see in a person that can lead communities through things that are hard versus control, domination, resistance. And I'll share now some questions just to prompt your own time of reflection and perhaps you like to journal or sketch um, as you spend this time with yourself. So I'm going to do four questions this time that each relate to these four methods. So the first is the micro level, working individually to gather data about individual experiences. And the question is, what conversation have you recently had where you really heard the experience of one of your clients or constituents? And what surprised you? The second question relates to the table and the act of working collectively to problem solve. So who are your allies right now? Could you write their names down? You know, who is on your side? And don't worry about how senior they are or how immediately connected they are to your environment or even how much you like them. You know, um, they may not be people you want to hang out with on your day off. But an ally is someone who understands and shares the vision and is committed to the hard work involved in seeing change affected. So how could you be intentionally sewing into these relationships? listening everyone I'm so glad that you are connecting with systemic renewal I have shared in this podcast the first two methods of the process and in next week's podcast I will cover the final two and some associated reflection questions with those so 
be blessed and grow well and I'll see you next week. Systemic Renewal is based in Melbourne, and so we acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and we pay respects to elders past, present and emerging.